if you are wondering how in the world is he going to preach about Canaanite real estate law in 4000 BC, <laughs> just trust me, I'll take you there eventually. But first, we've got to go to New York City in the 1990s. I'd like you to meet a guy named Jonathan Larson. He was born in 1960, and after he finished college, he began writing musicals. He wrote three in his career. The first was called Superbia. It wasn't picked up, wasn't well known. The second was called Tick, Tick, Boom, and was a little bit more successful. But throughout the 90s, Jonathan Larson wrote a third musical, which had a little bit more influence. It is called Rent. This one is a little bit more well known. Two different films have been made about his musicals. He's received eight different awards, nominated for three more. But here's the truth about Jonathan Larson that I want you to think about this morning. He never saw Rent performed on Broadway. In the build-up to the first performance of this show, Larson was experiencing chest pain. So he went to the hospital, Doctors took x-rays, looked at his chest, but they couldn't find anything. And the day before, the very first performance of Rent, the creator of that musical died at 35 years old. His heart completely failed in the middle of the night. Now, his death, like any young person's death, is so tragic, but we find it so upsetting that he didn't get to see the results of his work, right? Even if we don't know who Jonathan Larson is, even if you've never heard of his musicals, even if you don't care about Broadway, there's something troubling about someone not being able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. I think this is universal to human experience. And yet, we know as Christians that we will confront this reality all the time. The fact is, we don't always see the results of our work for the kingdom of God. Can you nod your head if you've ever thought about this? Think about what it was like, just for a second, for a Christian architect a thousand years ago to lay a stone for the very first cathedral. I want to put up a beautiful cathedral in Cologne, Germany. This cathedral that, that's on the screen took 632 years to be built and finished. Imagine it. You're the mason who places the very first stone. You will not live to see the cathedral. You're not going to worship in the very church you're trying to build. And then generations of men and women after you are still not going to be able to see this beautiful building. Think about the martyrs in the first few centuries of the church. Christians would be going about their normal lives, and then all of a sudden violence would flare up. They would become the scapegoat for some problem in the empire, and they would be killed for their faith. This is Caravaggio's painting of Peter's crucifixion, because he was crucified upside down. Christians like Peter had no idea that three centuries after the birth of Jesus, an emperor would come along, convert to our faith, and make it legal to be a Christian in the empire. So how, through decades and decades and decades, did they keep enduring suffering and death, not knowing if their lives would ever change their surrounding culture? Now, some of those examples might feel abstract or distant for you, but I want to bring this question way closer to home. Do you ever wonder, as a parent or as a grandparent, 
if you will see the results of your work to raise your kids in our faith. One of my favorite saints in church history is Saint Monica. She prayed for her son Augustine for years and years and years, and she would just weep asking God to convert her son, and finally she saw it. But what if she had never lived to see his conversion? I bet if you're a parent or a grandparent today that you have worried about your kid's faith at some point. She saw her prayers answered in her life, but will we see ours? Today we're talking about one of the promises that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Specifically, the promise of the land. At 75 years old, Abraham was told to leave his home because God said, I want you to go to the land I will show you. Now, the funny thing is, if you read chapter 12, Abraham's family packs up their bags and they move. It's only a couple verses later that they arrive in the land. It's not like Lord of the Rings where it takes a thousand pages to get to Mount Doom. They get there in the same chapter. The problem is, once they get to the land, they realize this land is not ours. Huge plot twist. Canaan has a bunch of Canaanites in it. And so they have to spend all of their days roaming in and outside of the land. From Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis chapter 23, Abraham does not own property. Have you ever thought about that? He went 62 years of his life not owning a single square foot of ground in the promised land. All the way from 75 years old to 137. And that's why today's story matters so much because I think what happens in this chapter gives us an answer to the question we're going to put on the screen and what I want you to be thinking about as we read through this passage again. Why should we do work for God's kingdom if we never live to see the results? Let me ask that question one more time. It's so important for every person in this room. It doesn't matter your age. Why should we do work for God's kingdom even if we never live to see the results. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, there are Bibles under uh, your chair. Um, it should be, this chapter should start on page 16 of those physical Bibles. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, chapter 23, I want you to go to verse 1. And if all that fails and it doesn't work, we'll put the verses on the screen, okay? This is how Genesis 23 starts. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. The first time in scripture we ever read about someone crying for their spouse. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and he spoke to the Hittites. Abraham has a plan. He says to them, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property from burial site here so I can bury my dead. In other words, I'm not from around here. I, I, I wasn't born here. I didn't inherit any land from my dead father. So I'd like to buy a burial site so I can lay my wife to rest in a tomb. And their reply, if you listen to it or read it, sounds really nice. Sir, listen to us. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Now, this offer, however hospitable it seems at first, is not what Abraham wants. 
He wants to purchase the land because there is a massive difference between visiting a land owned by someone else and owning the land yourself. Right? If you've ever visited a friend's home, they may say to you, make yourself at home. Right? But if you said, no, 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 I'd like to buy this home, they would know the difference. Right? Abraham wants a stake in the land. He wants the deed itself. And so he doesn't accept their offer. He very respectfully rose. He bows down before the people of the land. And he says, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, if you're being honest, then listen to me and intercede with Ephraim, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave. Again, he wants to buy this property. I know it belongs to him, and it's at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. I don't want a burial site of your choosing. I don't want one pre-approved. I want the one that I've chosen, and it's not even prime real estate. And my, my, kind of the craziest thing about this is that he says he's not going to barter with them. I'm going to pay a full price, whatever you say that price is. <coughs> so then Ephraim the Hittite, who's sitting among the people and who may be even a ruler over this city, replies to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites. He says, no, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. When this man says, I give this to you, it's not actually clear his intentions. He may be offering it free of charge, or he's saying, you can have it now, implying you better pay me later. But again, Abraham does not want to be in debt for any future payments. He doesn't want to get, receive a gift. He doesn't want to be beholden to this man in any way. What if Ephraim gives the gift now and expects something in return later? Abraham has almost had this same exact trick pulled on him in a previous chapter. If you go back to Genesis 14, the king of Sodom asks Abraham if he wants a gift of possessions. I want you to look at Abraham's words on the screen. He says, no, I will accept nothing belonging to you so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Okay. Remember, Abraham is a stranger in the land. He doesn't just magically trust anybody who lives there. And there are supposedly generous offers. He doesn't want to be under anyone's thumb. And you can tell this Ephraim the Hittite is actually being a little bit sneaky. Right? Abraham originally said, I would like to purchase the cave. And Ephraim expanded the deal in one little quick sentence. Right? You can have the field and the cave knowing that Abraham wants to buy it all. Again, Abraham bows down, he's very respectful, and he says to Ephraim in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, because you seem to be struggling with what I'm actually saying, I will pay the price of the field, accept it for me so I can bury my dead there. Ephraim says, listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what's that between you and me? What's the deal? Just bury your dead. But Abraham agrees to Ephraim's terms, weighs out for him the price he had named, 400 shekels. According to one scholar, this is an outrageous amount. This is the equivalent of 50 years of salary of a regular wage earner. Abraham says, I'll pay the full price. And this Hittite just sees bags of money right coming to him. When you compare it to other scriptures, it's almost sad. Do you remember how much Jesus was sold for? 30 silver shekels. This is over 10 times that amount. 
Abraham is willing to get ripped off to say, I own that land. I pay top dollar for it. Now, if you look at the way the chapter ends, I know you might be like falling asleep or slipping into a coma as you read it because it seems so boring, right? It reads like contract law. So Ephraim's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the land was deeded to Abraham, and then it keeps repeating, right? Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave, in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Goodness gracious, we have enough details. We know he owns the land. This isn't a gift. This isn't a kind gesture. It's not leverage that be, can be used against him. He possesses the land. Now, what does this story tell us about Abraham? I think Mitch East thinks that Abraham is seeing that his story is coming to an end. His wife has passed away. His son is a grown man. He's 37 years old. He's going to start a family soon. So if Abraham's story is coming to a close, he might be thinking about all the promises that God made to him. And I hope that you remember all four, right? Let's say them all together. We do this ritual every week. You thought I forgot, but I didn't. It's already in my sermon, okay? Let's say them together. God promised Abraham a name, a land, a son, and a blessing. Three of those have already been fulfilled in his lifetime. His name was changed from Abram to Abraham. He's clearly been very materially blessed near the end of his life. He's referred to as a mighty prince. And he's received the promised son at 100 years old. But what's the one promise that he hasn't experienced in his life so far? It's the promise of the land. And so what does he do? He buys some of it. He pulls out a lot of money to say, I don't care the cost. I'm not going to get a gift from y'all. I'm not going to be under anybody's thumb or in anyone's debt. My family will own this land fair and square. We will be buried right here. He acknowledges his impending death by acting on God's promise. The purchase of this land is an act of faith, right? Abraham says, this land doesn't appear to be mine. But one day, perhaps many days from now, God will give the whole thing to my family. And guess what? Abraham is proven right. It just takes a thousand years. Right? Five books later in the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, that's five books, the Israelites begin to conquer the land. It's not until five more books, Joshua, uh, excuse me, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and First Kings, that the borders finally reach what God originally said in Genesis 15. Can you believe this? God says all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Abraham, to your descendants I will give this land from the river of where? Egypt. To the great river, what? Euphrates. It isn't until 1 Kings 4 that we read, Solomon ruled over all of the kingdoms from the Euphrates River in the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. Just so you know, there's a thousand years in between those two verses. And God kept his promise. A thousand years. It's almost like the amount of time it takes to build a cathedral. It's like the amount of time it takes to create a civilization. It can feel like the amount of time you invest in your kids. 
Has it ever felt that way? Now, to be fair, Abraham isn't always serene about this promise. There were hard days when he asked, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? How can I know? Christians have been asking some form of this question for 2,000 years. Lord, how can we know that if we keep confessing that Jesus is Lord and we keep getting thrown to the lions, that we're ever going to change this Roman culture? You remember when the Cathedral of Notre Dame built, burned down? What did we ask? Should we really build it back up after all of that effort? It's hard to have faith to work in God's kingdom when we don't see the results. But I think Abraham's purchase of the land teaches us three things about our work that we just have to know. And I'm telling you this first thing because I'm your pastor, because I love you, because I care about you, okay? I'm not saying something that I wouldn't say to any other church, okay? First thing that this, this chapter teaches us is that debt is going to cut short any good work you're doing for God's kingdom. When we die, there is going to be good kingdom work worth doing. Helping to raise your grandkids, giving money to the poor, serving the homeless, loving your spouse. Death will cut it short every single time. But the truth, we, we can reject it, we can try and resist it, but it is freeing if you accept it. Abraham saw the end of his life coming, and what did he think? He thought about the future. He thought, what is going to continue past me? What legacy will I leave behind? And that's when he bought this plot of land. Now, a field in a cave may not look like much, right? But that's what he chooses to give his son. And guess what? We find out that three generations of his family are buried in that same cave. If you read Genesis 49, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah are buried in that cave, in that tomb that he bought. And that legacy started when Abraham recognized my story is coming to an end. And it's time for me to invest in the future. Which means, here's the second truth, we have to trust that God will work with future generations after we are gone. Imagine you were the second generations of Christians 2,000 years ago. You lived after Peter and Paul and James and John, and you might have thought to yourself, I can't compare to them. They're raising the dead. They're walking on water. God worked with them, but could he work with me? But here's the beautiful thing. Peter and Paul, they didn't convert the emperor. They didn't convert the Roman Empire. That was generations later because God was slowly working, slowly but surely, till he converted the entire civilization. We have to trust that God will work with future generations after we're gone. Christians in this country, 100 years ago, lived through World War I and the Spanish flu. And guess what? They had to pass on the kingdom to those who lived through World War II. And then the boomers have had to pass it to Gen X, and then Gen X will pass it to millennials, and then millennials will pass it to Gen Z, and Gen Z will pass it to whatever they're called next after that. We have to trust that God will work with future generations. It would be so arrogant and so prideful if I believed God is going to work with my generation and nobody after me. Here's the third thing. We need to accept the role we play within God's kingdom and not be bitter about it. I think about Moses sometimes. For after all of his hard work, guess what? He didn't get to see the promised land. 
Now, he could have been bitter about that, but guess what? He got to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. What an incredible role to play. The Hebrew prophets prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, but they actually never saw Jesus. They never got to see him in the flesh. But we need the prophets to play their role in their time and not be bitter about it. Each generation has to play its part. Abraham, he bought this land. He put down a peg and he said, one day this peg will hold up the tent of my family for generations to come. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what's our peg? What's our act of faith that shows our acceptance of our role in the kingdom of God right now? I, uh, I mentioned Lord of the Rings at the beginning, so I'll end there too, like a good preacher. I love referencing J.R. Tolkien. In the third book of this series, it's called Return of the King. On the eve of the greatest battle in all three books, a soldier sees a man leaving in the middle of the night. And this soldier is an advisor to the king, and he says, that man leaves because there is no hope. And the king says back to his advisor, the, the advisor says, we have too few soldiers, uh, and we cannot defeat our enemies. And so the king says, no, we cannot defeat our enemies, but we will meet them in battle nonetheless. The king knows that his role is to fight the battle even if the odds are against him. And he's right. They don't have enough men. But the good news is, when the fighting is at its worst, they get reinforcements. This is the kind of faith that the church needs right now. In the face of bad odds, we go into battle anyways. Despite never seeing the cathedral fully built, we put one brick down in the hopes that future generations will put down the next bricks. Regardless of whether the tide of persecution turns, you know what the martyrs did? They just kept preaching the gospel and suffering for Christ no matter how painful it was. We recognize death will cut short all the good work we could do, but instead of sinking into despair, we accept the role that we need to play in God's kingdom right now. So how can we work in God's kingdom if we never live to see the results? Because God is king. He will always fight the battle. And he has a wonderful knack of bringing in reinforcements at just the right time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we could have the faith of Abraham. That even when we don't see the results of our labor, that we would invest in the future. That generations beyond us will know that we put down those first bricks of a cathedral. That we were willing to suffer even in the face of persecution, knowing that one day God might do a new thing. Father, we pray that you would give us boldness to accept these truths is not easy. Teach us to number our days. Help us to trust you, that you will work in the generation after this and after that one as well. And Father, we... We pray that you reveal to us our role in the kingdom of God right now and that we would do it. Father, we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.